James chapter 5. And uh, if you want to turn there with me. I want to dive into this this morning. Um, Sorry, I have to get all this technology squared away. Okay, James chapter 5. Now, in James chapter 5, toward the end of this chapter, James sort of begins to wind down. And he leaves us with some final exhortations. Now, the word exhort means to strongly encourage or urge to action. So this is what's happening. This is what James is doing. Uh, and he closes his epistle with these exhortations. Now, these are, in some respects, they're familiar because the context uh, flows all the way from James chapter 1, verse 1, through this book. And so we have this uh, great cohesiveness throughout the book of James uh, that, if I'm honest, was somewhat unexpected to me as I read through it. Uh, and you look at commentaries and those kinds of things. But here it is nonetheless. And as James comes to the conclusion, he's in some respects restating points that have already been made. So if there's any repetition, uh, Thane said it well this morning, the horse is dead. Uh, we're going to do our best not to beat that horse, but to build upon those truths uh, with principles from scripture that we can that we can glean from them. And I, I don't think it's going to be too repetitive. If it is, just apologizing in advance. Um, I'll just remind you that this is written to believers. This is addressed to you and to me, those within the body of Christ. If you'll turn with me to chapter 1 for just a moment and look at verse 18, we usually we have this idea that uh, as, as we've looked at the audience, we've looked at the earlier verses in chapter 1, but in verse 18, uh, he says, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here's James talking to his audience, and he's clarifying to you and I, confirming that it is written to believers, those that have been begotten again, those who have been born again in Jesus Christ. So this is for you and me, and it addresses problems within the church, problems that may arise, problems that may be associated with the effects of sin in the world around us within us, within our families, within friendships, within other relationships, and the context that we exist. And it also gives us, and this is really paramount, this is, this is what the book of James is about, the proper action and response to those things that, that, that come upon us. And we'll remember that all the way back in chapter 1, Verse 2, my brother, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. When we have trials, when we have hardships, and when we are suffering in an affliction, whatever it may be, whether it's those good times where the Lord is blessing us and our perspective is right, this is how we respond to that. It's the outward expressions of inward faith. That's what James is about. He goes to great lengths in, in chapter 2 to talk about the relationship between works, the outward expressions of what is really inside of us. 
And we looked at that in, in detail. As he begins to close there, he really leaves us to, with, with three main exhortations. And we're going to look at those this morning, but uh, beginning in verse 12, he says, above all things. In other words, James is telling us, these are the things, these are the most important things. While I've said more than this, these are the most important things for you to take away. And it's in regard to all three. It's the preface to the final exhortations that he gives us. And without revealing too much as we progress, we'll get to these three things, but he to these three exhortations, but the three takeaways for you and I in relation to these are one, to let our lives be a clear witness. And this comes from the beginning to the end. Why do we rejoice in trials? Well, it's because we have a biblical perspective. We have this understanding of who God is, his care and concern for us. Therefore, what is the least that I can do? But to give my life a living sacrifice, to rejoice, to count it all joy because he is faithful and in the work of redemption. So our life from every facet should be a clear witness. We need to praise God, secondly, in the good and the bad. We rejoice in those hard times. We rejoice in the good times. We give credit to the Lord where it is due. And third, we pray in faith and trust of his sovereignty. I used to work with a man, and, and he, he asked this question, and, I, and, and at the time, it was a hard question for me to answer. But he said, why do you pray? If God knows everything, why would you need to pray? Why would he even instruct you to pray? And ultimately, prayer is not for the Lord. The prayer is for you and I. And it's an expression of faith. And it's an expression of our trust in his sovereignty. We pray not because God needs us to or not because it unlocks some special thing. We do it as an act of obedience and an act of trust in who God is. It's similar to Abraham offering Isaac. Do I trust the Lord or do I walk by sight? Those are the, sort of the three main points that these exhortations drive home today. Turn with me before we move on to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Because I think in Philippians we have a similar uh, summation of what we read here in James. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Paul is here writing, and he says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. 
that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Here we are, the outward expression, and here Paul gives us some of the same ideas that we do these things without murmuring and disputing, that our witness be consistent and clear. That we give thanks to God, that we are acknowledging of what he is doing in us and around us and through us. All right, let's dive in here. Verse 12 in James chapter 5. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath. But let your yea be yea and your nay, nay, lest you fall into condemnation. As much as it's easy to talk about this being simply about swearing an oath of any kind or, or, or something like that, and it definitely applies. This is a much more general uh, thing that James is talking about. And ultimately, he's talking about integrity. The quality of being honest, the quality of being moral, it's the state of being whole or undivided. Right? That, that's where we're at here. So when we're talking about letting our yes be yes and our no be no, we're talking about every facet of our life, not just those things that we would say, but the things that we would do. Consistency, clearness, but clearness is clarity. In our witness. James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, just to get some of that contextual flow, he says, in regard to lacking wisdom and asking God for it, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. An unintegrated or, or somebody without integrity is unstable. Their witness, the picture of Christ that they put out there as his ambassador is jumbled. And people have to pick through. Now, let's face it. We all are somewhat jumbled in our witness. And the way that we deal with jumbled witness is to own the hypocrisy. To talk about those things, to, to bring it out. To let people know that, listen, that is wrong and, and it is wrong for me to be engaged in it, whatever that may be. But that doesn't change the fact. I read an article, and, and I apologize, I don't remember who it was by, uh, but this gal was writing and she was talking about uh, when you see your sin in your children, those things that you may struggle with, those things. And, and she made the point that in some respects, our kids are learning that from us to some degree. But here's the thing. Your children and my children are not sinning because we sin. They're sinning because they're sinful. That's the biblical perspective. And so for us to address sin as sin with our children or with the world around us, though we may have our own faults, is not inappropriate. 
It is hypocritical for us to point out theirs and be unacknowledging of our own, however. And Jesus addressed that. Right? We, here's the speck in your brother's eye, but I'm unwilling to consider the being that is in my eye. So we can deal with hypocrisy. We can, we can move beyond that by owning it. It's no longer hypocrisy. I'm calling sin, sin. In Matthew chapter 5, turn there with me. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. <clears throat> Jesus gives us effectively the same exhortation in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. Verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it has been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. Now the word forswear, that means basically to lie. It means that I've given my promise, I've given my oath with the intention of not keeping it. That's, that's what it means. So for swear means to uh, swear falsely or commit perjury. I have no intention of following through. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to be into people of integrity. When I say, yes, I'll do that, we follow through and we do that thing. When I say, no, I can't do that, we follow through, we don't do that thing. Jesus continues on, however, and he says, but I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, nor for it is God's throne. And I'll just point out that this is not really a contradiction. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, let me just turn there and read it to you. Because we have in the Old Testament this, this direction that if we're going to swear, if we're going to have an oath or perform an oath, that we do so unto the Lord, that the he is what we swear by, in other words. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, if you want to put it in your notes, it says, thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. That's a key to understanding this verse. Fear the Lord thy God. Him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave and swear by his name. In other words, because I fear the Lord, as Jesus said, listen, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear those who can kill the body and cast your soul into hell. In other words, we have this appropriate reverence and fear of the consequence that God will sow in our lives and reap in our lives if we swear falsely. We're his representatives. It's not necessarily a prohibition on performing an oath. It's a prohibition upon performing an oath that we don't intend to keep or that we intend to keep with or the, that we feel as if it is inconsequential if we don't keep. We told somebody we would do something. Thou shalt not lie or bear false witness. Yet here we are purposing to do that very thing. So God addresses this. Jesus continues on. It's one and the same. They're very consistent. What we read in the Old Testament is consistent with the theme and what Jesus is teaching in the New Testament. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. I don't want to add to the word of God, but what else might we swear by? Right? We swear on my mother's grave. I swear on my children. Whatever it may be, we swear on these things, and it's, it means nothing. That's the idea here, that I swear on all of these things, but I'm, but I'm perjuring myself. I have no intention of keeping this. This is a false oath. Jesus is saying, don't swear at all. Don't make any kind of an oath. He says, but let your communication be yes, yes, yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever more is more than these comes to evil. In other words, Jesus is just saying, be a person of integrity. Be somebody that, said, that, that people would trust, that is honest, that if I say that I'm going to do something, I follow through on it. If I say I'm not going to do something, then I don't. That's all he's saying. It's a very simple principle, yet it's one that is hard to live by and ultimately becomes a very clear witness of our commitment to the Lord. Because we're, we're, we're living this way in response to the grace and the mercy that we receive from him. That God in his own character who would say, listen, I will redeem you. I will send somebody to crush the head of the serpent all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 delivers on that promise. And though, as, as it says in First uh, Peter 3, 9, right, it's though some man, that God is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness. In other words, he's not somebody who's putting it off. He's not somebody who has forsworn himself, who has perjured himself, has lied to us. But he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. He's delivering on every promise that he has made and has delivered on many of them. Yet others are unfulfilled in their, in, in their fullest sense because God is desirous that he would have the opportunity to show grace and mercy to as many as would come to him. He says, let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into condemnation. The word condemnation in James chapter 5, verse 12, isn't any, doesn't have anything to do with judging or condemning somebody, uh, being down on them for what they're done. It's the Greek word hypocrisis, which sounds a lot like hypocrisy because that's what it means. Saying one thing and doing another. Being divided in our intention and in our heart. Right? We're supposed to be people of integrity, a clear witness, not unstable, but clearly standing in God's camp, representing him to the world around us in what we say, in what we do, and how we conduct ourselves, not just in the words that we speak. He phrases it in the words that we speak in that regard because that's an easy trap for us to fall into. You remember in James chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and also able to bridle the whole body. And he goes on to give a huge uh, description of the words that we speak. And how easy it is to fall into that trap. 
but it isn't just the things that we say. We're to be people of integrity in all matters. And if that means that we have to confess things to avoid and to remove, to deal with hypocrisy, then it means confession. It means clarifying our witness, calling sin, sin, owning what is ours. That's honoring to the Lord, and ultimately, it's to his glory. He continues on in verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing songs. Now, the word affliction here, it means enduring hardship, which is consistent with what we've read in this chapter, right? We've looked at those who are being oppressed, who are being taken advantage of. If you are enduring affliction, if you are one of those who uh, is being encouraged in the very beginning of James chapter one to count it joy when you were in diverse temptations, when you are suffering hardship, the exhortation to you and I is to pray. The exhortation is to pray. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Now, as we get here, we have King Manasseh. 99.9% of the time, and 0.9999 repeating, Manasseh is not going to be somebody that we look to for any kind of example of what we should be doing. Because he was one of the bad kings. If we begin, if we look at the first few verses here, Manasseh in 2 Chronicles 33, he was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 15 five years in Jerusalem. But he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He was a bad dude. Worship pagan idols. He even sacrificed his children to those idols. He was bad. And even more than all of that, he led the nation of Israel. He led his kingdom in the same idolatry. It was his idolatry that ultimately was the result of Jeremiah's proclamation of God that this judgment is coming. It was the result of what he, Manasseh, had done. And scripture specifically states that. God tells Jeremiah, tell the people, this is what it is. This is why. And so ultimately we find that uh, Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, he caused them to err, it says in verse 9. And the Lord sends the Assyrians to judge them. They're his instrument of judgment there. And ultimately they're captured. And Manasseh is captured. Beginning in verse 10. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Wherefore, the Lord brought upon the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in, when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Here he is. God is using the Assyrians as a means of correction. 
Manasseh got the memo. In his affliction, now I'm not saying, we're going to address this later. I'm not saying that just because you're having hardships, God is judging you. That is not a necessarily a true statement. Could be. And here in this case it is. But the point is he's in affliction. And his response to that affliction was correct. He besought the Lord. He prayed to God. There was nothing that he could do to alleviate himself from. He had been captured. He was in bonds. He was stuck. And ultimately, he could walk by sight, throw his hands in the air. He could try to negotiate his way out or whatever other means kings may come to uh, to try and alleviate the affliction that they find when they've been captured by enemies. Or he could walk by faith. And for one time in his life, Manasseh decided, I'm going to walk by faith. I'm going to trust in the God of my father. Hezekiah, who was a godly king, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And he prayed unto him in verse 13, and he was entreated of him. He was heard by God, and he heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. God delivers him. God delivered Manasseh. Now, after this, he was built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the, in the valley, even to the entering at the fish gate, encompassed about Ophel, and raised it up a very great height and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Jerusalem. So he fortifies the defenses of the king of Jerusalem. And more importantly, in verse 15, he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had, had built in the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Manasseh comes full circle. Now, this is at the end of his life. And ultimately, Judah does not respond in kind. It takes year, well, it takes time to fall into idolatry, it takes time to come back out of that idolatry. But he sort of gets the ball rolling is the best that he can. And he makes the command that we have to worship God. We're going to get rid of all these idols. Everything that I've set up, even in the temple, we're going to remove that. We're going to get rid of it. And we're going to worship the God of heaven, the God of our fathers, and him only. In his affliction, he besought the Lord. He sought God in prayer and God heard him and God delivered him. And then there was a proper response to that because of what God has done for us. What is the least that we could do for him? Well, we can commit ourselves to it. We can lay our lives as a living sacrifice. So here's Manasseh, this terrible guy. And God hears his prayer. And I chose this example because I could make this one simple point. If God would hear Manasseh, how much more would he hear you or I, his children? How much more would we be able to trust God to deliver us from that affliction, to give us grace in the midst of it, if he would be willing to grant it to Manasseh? This man who had led his people 
to a path of idolatry and rejection of him who had polluted and profaned the temple, who had offered his children to pagan idols. How much more you and me, his people, than someone like that? We have this assurance. We have this hope. We pray in hardships. Whether or not we choose to pray in those afflictions is an indicator of where our heart is, where our faith is. Do I walk by sight or do I walk by faith? Do I walk by sight in what I can see, taste, touch, feel, understand, comprehend in my humanness, in my sinfulness, and my imperfection? Or do I walk in faith that God is in fact sovereign, that he loves me, that he is in the business of redemption, that he hears me, that he has promised to extend grace or to deliver? Do I walk in faith or do I walk in sight? When we pray, as I said earlier, this is an exercise of faith. It's a faith training, if you will. We're going to do this thing to strengthen, and I hate this illustration, but it's applicable here, strengthen the muscle of faith. Because I think that what is, what is given in the word is ample. Our personal experience confirms, and that's all it does. The witness of God's word should be, in my estimation, enough to move me to faith. But whether or not I choose to pray in those hardships, if that is my first response or my fifth response, perhaps is an indicator of where my faith is. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 again. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45. Jesus says, you have heard that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. When we're in the midst of this affliction, right, if it, if people are involved. We know that because James chapter 4, in the beginning of that chapter, why is there strife and war and fighting all these things among you? Because of sin, because of the lust of the flesh and the pursuit of those lusts. People are involved. So here we are. What is Jesus' command? If I'm going to walk by faith, if I want to pray in my hardships, one of the things that I should be praying for the people who are afflicting me, people who are the are causing the hardship. We pray for them. We pray for our enemies. We pray for those who would despitefully use us and persecute us. That's not walking by sight. If we walk by sight, right, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He goes on in verse 45 that you may be the children of your father, which is in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
Now, this isn't a conditional statement saying that if we don't do this, we're not the children of, of, of God. What it's saying is that you will be known as the children of God. That you will be clarified. It's this clear witness that we're trying to establish here. My integrity, I claim the name of Christ, and so therefore this is how I would operate. We're going to pray for those who would cause us the hardship. In addition, turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, I want to look at a few verses here. We can look at all of them in between, but for sake of time, we're going to start in verse 40. Luke 22, verse 40. When he came at the place, he said unto them, pray that you enter not into temptation. So here is Jesus, and he's going to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it takes Peter, James, and John with him. And as he is nearing his destination, he tells them, listen, you guys wait here and pray. And specifically, he tells them here, pray that you enter not into temptation. As we are exercising faith, we don't lose faith. Does that make sense? If we And, and so using that example of a muscle, Again, I'm not a big fan, but, but it, it works here. If you take a bodybuilder who, who is big and bulky and has huge muscles, and they don't exercise those muscles, pretty soon they're not going to have big muscles anymore. There's this ongoing process. I saw a, a meme, and it's, <laughs> it said, they said exercise to get in shape. They didn't say keep exercising to stay in shape, but the guy's just crying, you know, I mean, because <laughs> this is this is not my life. This is what I got to do all the time. And I get it. It's not easy. But Je- Jesus exhorts his disciples, Peter, James and John, continue in prayer that you don't fall into temptation. Preserve yourself from that by continuing to exercise trust. By continuing in prayer. If you jump down to verse 46, obviously they didn't. They fell asleep. Verse 46, and when he wakes them up, why sleep you? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. He gives them the same exhortation. Continue in prayer. Now, the temptation for me when I'm in prayer is to do that, just fall asleep, right? That's eyes get I pray with my eyes open. So that I don't fall asleep as easily. You know, when the eyes get heavy, it's time to change position or do something. (laughs) Eyes closed prayer, guaranteed I'm going to fall asleep. (laughs) I don't think there's a formula. Jesus didn't say in the Lord's Prayer, kneel down, fold your arms, close your eyes. He just said, this is how you pray. It's okay to pray with your eyes open. Pray while you're driving. Whenever. But the idea here is that this is a preservation. It's a continuance in that faith, in walking by faith, in trusting the Lord. It's an acknowledgement of who he is, what he's done. It's a continual giving thanks. It's all of those things linked in one single act. James says, when you are in affliction, pray. He also says, 
if you're merry, let him sing psalms. And the, the word psalms there simply means praise to the Lord. When we, are, when we praise God, when we're giving thanks for the things that he's done, even for the hardships that we may find ourselves in, which is what we find at the very beginning of James chapter 1. And all that tells me is that this merriness is not dependent on the circumstance. That we can be happy, we can be joyful, we can be filled uh, with this merriness, no matter what the circumstances that surrounds us. Whether we're in affliction or whether we're out of affliction, whether everything is going well or whether everything's in the ditch. And whether we would choose to praise God for those things is an indicator of where our faith is. Do I have a biblical perspective? Do I look at things through the lens of what scripture has clearly taught? Or do I look through the lens of this is what I can see and taste and touch and feel? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. I just want to pause there for a moment. The word of Christ, the word of truth, the scriptures that God has given us and preserved for us in the Bible. Let that dwell in you richly. In other words, let that be in you. Let that be the abundance of your heart. Let that do its work to change and correct our thinking, to cleanse us, to bring about understanding and a worldview that is based upon what it says and not what we would say it says, or what we think or what we want it to say. We let the word of God dwell in us richly. It's informing our understanding teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. We had this idea that as we change our thinking, so to speak, as we would, as we read in uh, Romans, nope, not Romans, Hebrews chapter 12. I might be wrong about that. But this washing of the water, this renewing of our mind, that's Romans chapter 12, that's 12 too. This renewing of our mind, that it's being changed and conformed by the word of God as it comes in. And not only that, but as a result of that, we express that through praise, through thanksgiving, through adoration of what God has done and who he is. And let me just remind you that in John chapter 1, we have this immediate and permanent connection between the word of God that dwells in us and Jesus Christ being the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Right? We have the certainty that that, that is where this is coming from, that this is what is being discussed, that God in us, Jesus Christ, is 
So we let the word of God dwell in us richly, doing what which is designed to do, not returning void because we are submitted and subjected to it. Continues on in verse 17. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So here we are. We're thankful. We're merry. We're, we're exuberant over whatever God has done in us, around us, through us, whatever we witness. We, we hear about something we've been praying about, uh, whether it's uh, somebody having a baby or whatever it may be, but we're praying about the circumstance and here it is, God has been faithful and we praise him. We give thanks. We witness to the world around us the faithfulness and the goodness of God by articulating the faithfulness and the goodness of God. How many of you, when you're down, go to the Psalms? Because here in the Psalms, you read about David being down, and yet in the midst of that, God is good. God is my refuge. God is my protector. God is my helper. God is my restorer. God is my deliverer. Over and over and over. And then even in those times when David is writing Psalms, uh, or any other, other of the psalmists are writing Psalms, in those seasons of peace and prosperity, and, and everything is well with them and in the kingdom. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Not look at me, not we're doing well, but praise God. There's this witness clearly and consistently throughout the Psalms of who God is and what he's done. And this is what we're commanded to do. When we are married, when everything is well, when everything is even not well, we give thanks, we rejoice, we praise God for all that has happened. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. <clears throat> 2 Chronicles chapter 16. We encounter another king of another king in uh, <clears throat> Judah. King Asa. Now, more than once in King Asa's reign, there was the opportunity for him to trust the Lord. He was faced with an invasion, and the first time he sought the Lord and God delivered him. God delivered the kingdom. He protected them. The second time, and this is what we read about here in 2 Chronicles 16, he doesn't. He walks by sight. Well, this is what kings do. We make leagues and pacts with other nations so that when our common enemy comes and attacks either one of us, we'll both respond. We'll be able to defend ourselves. We put trust in something besides the living God. And God sends to him Hanani, the prophet, the seer, to correct his heart. Let's begin here in verse 7. And at that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah. And said unto him, Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria, and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. For you chose to walk by sight and not by faith. You chose to trust in something other than the living God. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims, and this is the first, this is reference to the first time when God did deliver them, when Asa did seek the Lord, were not the these a huge host 
with very many chariots and horsemen. Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. And then we have this, and this is what I want you to take away this morning, whether it's good, bad, where here we are, we're praising the Lord. It says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. And he rebukes him. You've done foolishly, Asa. Is our heart perfect? Is our heart undivided? In other words, have, have we, we talked about this last week, right? That we've made preparation that whenever anything hits, I'm going to choose to trust the Lord. I've identified the exits. We've done all that so that when it comes, and Jesus is being instructed this, I tell you this so that when it comes, you're not offended. You're not stumbled. Have we made the conscious choice to choose to walk in faith and not by sight, to be undivided, not one foot in the world and one foot over here like King Asa, but both feet firmly in God's camp. He wants to show himself strong on our behalf. He wants to. And that's what it says right here. There's this promise to you and I as believers that if we are trusting of the Lord, that if we walk by faith, he will deliver us. And we've talked about deliverance in the past. That does not necessarily mean that everything's going to go our way, that we'll never have flat tires, that we're never going to hit a deer running down the road, that we're never, it, it doesn't mean that the water heater is never going to fail. It might not even mean that we'll be delivered out of the circumstance that we're in. But what it does mean and what it assures us is that even in the midst of that hardship, even in the midst of that good time, whatever it may be, God extends to us grace to represent him appropriately in the midst of it. That if I marry, I would sing praise. I would tell people what God is doing, how faithful he is, that if there's hardship and affliction, that I would choose to walk by faith. I'm going to pray for those who would afflict me. I'm even going to share the gospel with them. It reminds me of Richard Wormbrand and his story. Here they are, these uh, communist Russia, and they're cracking down, and he takes the opportunity, sneaks into the camps of the soldiers, and shares the gospel with them with contraband books. Here's the Bible, and I put it in another cover so that I didn't get caught, so that I could bring it to you. And he ends up in prison. And in the midst of that prison, he sings praise to the Lord for what he's done, because he knows that people are being saved. And here I am. In the midst of this, in this hardship, in this affliction, obviously this is where God would have me. This is where I can do the most good for his name. He is sovereign. The next section here is very related. It's often picked out, but it's very related to what we're talking about here. James chapter 5, verses 14 through 18. I'm going to read it all. We'll come back and we'll, we'll discuss it. Is any man sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins... They shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. 
Elias or Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. The prayer of faith. Now, Peter, when he was talking about Paul in scripture, you remember that Paul, Peter said that Paul, our brother, he acknowledges, hey, he's, he's a believer. He's one of us. He's among us. But he writes things that are hard to understand. I'm pretty sure that that doesn't apply to just Paul. There are lots of things that God has recorded and preserved that are hard to understand. Now, I want to get to thus saith the Lord. I want to get to that. I want to get to where the word of God instructs us. There are a lot of opinions, and there's very little consensus among scholars regarding what this passage that we just talked about, what it means, how we apply it, what, what ramifications it, it may have upon us. So I've tried to examine what God has said, and I've tried not to infer my opinions or any dogma on the subject. But I'm just going to encourage you to be a Berean, do your own study here. I would not say, hey, I'm an expert and I've just nailed this and I've settled it 100% and within myself. This is a hard one. And it's okay for it to be hard and it's okay for you guys to say, I'm going to do further study. Just putting that out there. Now, I'm going to give you three main interpretations that, that you might encounter. Number one, Calvin, John Calvin, who... Uh, we should respect and who we should honor as a man of God. I don't agree with everything that he wrote. But he said that this is for an apostolic age only, which is really an easy interpretation. But here's the issue with that. I think that he misses an obvious point. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the apostles of the church. Is that what it says? No, it says let him call for the elders of the church. God has said to you and I, listen, I'm going to establish in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. Let me just turn there and read it to you very quickly. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Pastors being the same word elder. Right? God has established these other offices. Now, while I'm of the same opinion of Calvin here that I don't think that prophets in the traditional sense or apostles in the traditional sense exist anymore the word of god has been written there's no new revelation happening we can talk about that more offline but those two offices in their original context like we read about apostles peter james and john those guys that doesn't exist the same now apostolos meaning messenger maybe there's some idea that hey missionaries fall into some of that category we can have that discussion okay Prophets, those who speak directly, who reveal the, the word of God to us, it's closed. And God closed it by those who were inspired to write it. There's no new revelation. But there may be those who would stand and say, listen, this is what God has said. Thus saith the Lord, we're going to be unwavering here. And I would be content with that interpretation. But he continues, and not only does he continue, he says there are evangelists. There are those who share the gospel. That is a unique office within the body of Christ. 
Your job is to go out and evangelize, and that's what you do. And there are pastors, there are elders, and there are teachers, those who are just gifted teachers within the church. They may not bear the same responsibility as the eldership, as the pastors in that church, but nonetheless, here it is. And those three evangelists, pastors, and teachers, you find those being continued through the New Testament. In fact, it's for that purpose that Paul would write to Timothy and say, listen, I left you in Ephesus for the reason that you need to raise up elders within the church. Those who can continue to steward on, those who will continue to be the under shepherds in that church, those offices are still in existence and still necessary. And I know that because it continues on for the perfecting of the saints. This is why I gave them for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect man, into the measure and the statue of the fullness of Christ. Here it is. Those things exist. The elders still exist. Who do we call for? The elders. Seems like this is something that is applicable today. I think Calvin missed something. And I'm not the only one that thinks Calvin, I mean, if it was just me and John Calvin, you know, be careful. John Calvin was, is a pillar, okay? But there's something here, call for the elders. That's a specific command. I don't think it's for just the apostolic age. Now, you have this prosperity or liberal doctrine, uh, kind of the name it and claim it. Right, that here we can just, and they're, they're the ones that will cherry pick this out of its context. The problem here is that it removes God from his sovereign throne and it enshrines man in that place. It may not be God's will that a person is healed. That may not be the case. This isn't a formula. This isn't some prescriptive thing where if you do A plus B equals C, that's not what this is. You call for the elders. They anoint you with oil. You pray. You will be healed. It's not a guarantee. It's not a name and a claim. This is God is not our genie. And we've gone through the formula, rub the lamp, and now we get three wishes. But that's what those who in liberal theology would do. They would grab this out and they would make it that. They remove it from the context. What is the context? Hardship, affliction. Context ultimately is prayer and faith in God. Third, you're going to find the, the all of this gave way to modern, modernity, modernness. Modernity is a word. And that's what it means, modernness. Okay, modern medicine has removed the need for prayer for the sick. To that, I would say, who heals? God heals. How does God heal? However he wants. If it's through a miraculous intervention or whether it's at the hands of medical professionals, God's the one that heals. Medical professionals are smart. They understand part of God's creation to some extent, but ultimately God does the healing. So they're not mutually exclusive of one another. 
And I would say that even if perhaps you've called for the elders and you've gone through and they've prayed and all those things, doesn't mean maybe follow up with the doctor. It isn't, it doesn't necessarily indicate that I'm lacking trust. Okay, we, we just have to be careful. I'm not trying to draw a line in the sand and say you should never go to the doctor in those cases, because there are those who will do that. They'll swing to the opposite extreme. We never go to the doctor. We never do anything. We're just going to trust God for everything. Well, maybe God's plan and purpose to heal you through that medical profession. Ultimately, God heals. None of this excludes, uh, none of it removes the need to continue in prayer, to place our trust firmly in the Lord. We joke about it, but it's really a serious thing that, listen, when your time is up, your time is up. And no medical professional is going to extend you beyond that time. God knows the number of days, the number of breaths that you and I are going to take. When your time is up, your time is up. When your time is not up, your time is not up. Which is not an indication that we should go out and live recklessly or carelessly. We are not supermen because it's not my day today. But we trust the Lord. He is sovereign. So those are the three main interpretations that you find. Those are the three main. Um, just throwing that out there for your benefit as you continue to study. Now, I, wanted, I want to identify the participants. Who is engaged in this process? Because I think it helps bring some clarity. Uh, again, the context is important. Prayer. We're in the midst of praying because we're in affliction. Could sickness be affliction? Well, absolutely it could be. And what do we do in affliction? We trust God. We, uh, we ask him for his intervention. We pray for grace. When everything's going well, what do we do? We sing songs. We praise the Lord. When we're, when, when we're having hardship, just like Paul and Silas in prison, what were they doing in the middle of the night? Praising God. So when we're sick, it's another example of exactly what he's talking about. Are you afflicted? Are you merry? Are you sick? What do you do? You trust the Lord. You pray to him. It's another example. But we have these participants that are involved here. And number one, I want to point out the church. Is any among you? Is any among you in the church? And I bring that up because here we are. You should be engaged in some congregation somewhere where there's leadership in such a way that you could call for the elders. Now, I'm the first to say that whether I like it or not, that's the way God has structured things. I like things kind of loose and flowy. It's not how God has structured the church. And he gets to make the rules. He is sovereign. He's God, and I'm not. And so even if I don't like it, that's the way it's going to be. And he tells us we should be engaged in a church so much so that there's a structure of leadership as he has appointed it, that there are elders in place. Right? Is there any among you? Let him call for the elders. The church is engaged. In Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, here's Paul, who's still at this point being called Saul. 
but he's gone to Damascus. And while he's there, obviously he's, he's engaged with everyone. And, and this is when they actually have to sneak him over the wall at night because they're trying to kill him. They find out, Hey, this Saul who was our chief persecutor, he's turncoat. Now he's on the other team. So we're going to kill him. And they sneak Paul out. And Paul in, in Acts chapter nine, verse 26, this is what it says. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, what was the first thing that Paul did after he left Damascus? He went to Jerusalem. He went to the church. And he essayed, he tried, that's what it means. He tried to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Rightfully so, right? Trust but verify. This guy was over here just trying to kill people in Damascus, and now he's here in Jerusalem. What are we going to do? He says he's one of us, but maybe he's just being a spy. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and how he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas brings him to the apostles and says, listen, guys, here is the fruit that's on the tree. You and I were haters and persecutors of God before we came to Christ, just like Saul was. And then what happened? We were born again. And we changed. Here he is preaching boldly, even to the point where we had to sneak him out of Damascus because they were going to kill him. Paul Barnabas is his witness of all the things that have happened. And he brings him to the apostles and he tells them about this. Verse 30, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him unto Tarsus. Nope. Yeah. Uh, verse 28, sorry. And when he was with them coming in and going out of Jerusalem, he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit were multiplied. Right? They, they believe the report of, of Barnabas and they see the life of Paul and how he's changed. They witness it. And what does it say? It says that the church takes comfort in the Holy Spirit. Right? We can trust the Lord. We can trust that he will, in fact, deliver us, that he's watching out for that, which he has instituted, that he is spreading the gospel. We were persecuted, but that was the means by which God spread us throughout the world to take the message of Jesus. And they get it. They respond in joy. But Paul goes to the church. He understands the need and the way the body of Christ is structured. In fact, most of what we read in the New Testament in regard to the body of Christ was pinned and explained by Paul. Him being some wart on the body of Christ for a period of time that nobody wanted. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is one of the key places where we read what Paul wrote in regard to the body. I want to read a fairly long passage here, and I'm just going to read it. I'm not really going to make comment because it speaks for itself. 
Paul uses the illustration of the body of Christ, and he talks about how it's all needful and appropriate and sovereignly placed there by God. Let's read 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 through 27. For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. In other words, your physical body is an example of the body of Christ. That's what he said. For by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? No, still, it's obviously part of the body. It's a rhetorical question. For the body is not one Nope, excuse me, verse 16. And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, were not the hearing, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now God has set the members, every one of them in the body as it has pleased him. And if they we're all one member where we're the body. But now are they many members yet but one body? And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which you th we think to be less honorable, upon the these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God has tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. Verse 25, that there should be no schism. And that word schism means division. There should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members in particular. You nor I nor any other believer can say to any other believer, I don't need the body of Christ. Nor can they say, God has placed me over here in my own body. I'm the church of a member membership one. That doesn't fit the model of the body that God has explained to us here. That's somebody who is described in Hebrews 10.25, forsaking the assembling of themselves together. I have theories about why they would do that, and I'll spare you those. But here it is. This interaction, this church, it is necessary. And not only that. We notice that we're put where we're put by the plan and the purpose of God. Whether we are those who are going to minister, and I'll say that probably all of us to whatever degree are going to be those who minister within our church. And those who are receiving that ministry and all of us to whatever degree are going to be receiving of that ministry. It is a unique function. That when one suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, when one is honored, we all rejoice. If Brianna was going to get employee of the decade, 
we would all be there. We would rejoice. If Salome's knee tomorrow, that we prayed for this morning, just explodes and we have to amputate her leg, we're all going to suffer with her. We're going to be there. That's the body. That's how it functions. And I know those are oddball, borderline creepy examples, but that's what's being described here. Here's the church. We are to be involved in a church so that we can call for the other, so that we can bear one another up. The first and often missed character in this scene about the prayer of faith is the church. Don't miss it. There's the assumption that we are engaged and it is inferred in the text. We are responsible to each other in the church. Jump with me down to verses 19 and 20 in James chapter 5. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him. Right, so this, these are people who have slidden back. Listen, I'm going to choose to walk by faith in this particular area. I am going to choose to satisfy the lust of my flesh in this particular area. If one of you do err and falls from the truth, errs from the truth, turns from it, and one convert him, you bring him back to right thinking about that thing. Let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. There is a responsibility here. We read about this in Galatians as well. You who are spiritual, when you see your brother stuck in sin, restore such a one. That's exactly what we're, we're seeing described here. Within the body of Christ, we have a responsibility to each other. We would confess to each other. Now, I'm not saying that necessarily there needs to be a public confession. We're all going to stand up here in the next 10 minutes and we're all going to confess our, our faults. The circle of, of sin is the limits of the circle of confession. That makes sense. Right? I might have sinned against Lydia. I need to go and confess to Lydia. Perhaps depending on the nature of sin, maybe that it maybe goes a little further, but, but that's it. We're going to confess one to another. And when we're talking about confession here in this sense and in, in this context, this is this coming together where we get to bear one another's burdens. We get to come alongside and say, listen, I see you're struggling here. And I'll just tell you this. If somebody comes to you and says, I think you're struggling here. Can we talk about it? Do not take offense. Don't take offense. If they're wrong, they're wrong. That's okay. They're showing concern. They're showing love. We don't, we should rejoice about that. Don't take offense. The participants, number one, the church. Number two, the elders. Is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church. Now, the elders have a unique responsibility within the body of Christ. They are responsible for the church. They're part of those who are in the church. They're not like this elite echelon. I am not some, you know, I'm not above the interaction with the church. It should be the same interaction with the church. We're responsible for one another. I, 
as a pastor here, we have the same function in that sense. But I also have a special job, and I'm responsible for the church. And I'll just tell you that there's a lot of ways that I'm learning that I'm responsible for the church every day. So when I blow it, and you want to talk to me about it, let's talk about it. I'm happy, happy to have that discussion. Because I want to honor the Lord in what we're doing here and every facet of it. Okay. Hebrews chapter 13. Let's just look there. And I don't I don't go here to these passages to put you under my thumb. And that'll make more sense as we progress here through Hebrews 13. All I'm saying is that there is this responsibility amongst the elders for what's happening there. Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to begin in verse 7, then we're going to jump down. It says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Now, that's one exhortation. Those that God has established, those who he has placed in those roles of eldership. And I'll just tell you, if you listen, if you're a man here today, I mean, you're not, you're in recruitment mode and you don't even know it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Everyone because I believe that there should be more than one elder. And I'll just tell you, when we started planning this church, had such high and great intentions, and I did a lot of things wrong, and that's one of the chief things that I feel that I made a mistake in. But two wrongs don't make it right. We're not just going to put somebody in a role of eldership that doesn't meet the biblical qualifications. So I apologize for that. But here we are. Everyone is a candidate. Men, you're candidates. Just watching, taking notes. I know it's really, it's high pressure. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, but but those who have the rule over you, God, God establishes them. He, it's a special role. They speak unto the word of God, which one of the things that you're supposed to be able to do is to be able to teach, capable to uh, share the word of God and instruct in it, whose faith follow. There should be an example of faith in those people, which is one of the things that we see in the list of qualifications. And uh, Timothy, First Timothy, and in Titus. Considering the end of their conversation, right? What is their life? What is the fruit of their life? I'll just tell you, probably nobody's going to have perfect fruit. We all know this. But what's the end look like? Is it really far from the mark? Be careful there. Is it like, hey, it's pretty good, but man, there's a, there's a few bumps and bruises on those apples. I think we could probably extend some grace. Jump with me down to verse 17. He says again, obey them which have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. Pray for us for we, we trust we have a good conscience in all things willingly to live honestly. So we're going to obey those who have the rule over us. We're going to submit ourselves to them with, within the bounds given in Scripture. Right? If you have to get permission from your pastor to go on vacation, that's onerous. That is outside of the scope of their responsibility before the Lord. You should probably leave that church. I don't, you know, if you're going to go on vacation, great. Let, let us know because we might be concerned that there's something wrong. You're probably going to get, you should get phone calls. If you just leave on vacation, nobody knows. I would hope if you don't, that's, you know, 
extend grace. But here it is, right? We're going to submit to them within the bounds of what God has told us in Scripture, right? They have a responsibility to keep and to preserve the church. They're going to execute. They have a mechanism of discipline within the church. And so we submit ourselves to that mechanism of discipline. What happens today? Well, gee, I feel persecuted. I'm just going to leave and go find another church. And every other church is happy to pick that person up. Which there isn't a problem with somebody leaving a church. If God has sovereignly moved you to a different church and he sovereignly moved you, he does that. And I'm happy to see people where they need to be. But when I take offense and I feel persecuted and boy, they're confronting me about sin, which is all biblical. This is too much. I'm out. That, that isn't submitting here. They're, they're, again, showing love and concern. They're operating within the role that God has given them. We need to be submitted to that. We need to be, okay, this is, this is what God said should happen. And we do this, why? Because they must watch for your souls. They have a responsibility for the church. I'm not responsible for your salvation in particular. But I have a responsibility before the Lord to help you succeed in the Christian life, to equip you for this work of the ministry, to, to bring you into a proper and a full understanding of the word of God. They watch for souls as they that must give account. Right in James chapter three, in the beginning, not, don't be many masters. If you don't be those who seek to be those elders who, because they have a responsibility. And we talked about that. He's saying the same thing. But it says, hey, submit to them that they can do it with joy and not with grief. <laughs> for that's unprofitable for you. Make it easy on those fellows. And this, this, I added this verse 18 for myself and purely selfish reasons. Pray for us. Those who are in leadership, pray for us. We need every prayer. I would covet your prayers for my preparation, for humility, for just, Lord, what direction for our church have we interrupted? Covet your prayers. Probably a hundred other things that I haven't even thought of that I didn't know I needed prayer in. If you're praying for me, I appreciate it. Thank you. Pray for us. Okay. The second player in all this second participant is the eldership. We have the church. We have the elders. <clears throat> Thought this was about sick people. Where are they? Well, they're next. Okay. The third participant, the third character here is the sick. That person that is weak. Now, the word sick here, it means without strength. That's what it means. More often than not in scripture, it's it's in a context of physical infirmity. However, it's not exclusively used that way in scripture. It can also be a physical weakness, excuse me, physical weakness. It can be a mental weakness and it can be a spiritual weakness. It can be any of the three. Here I am, whatever it may be, with mental impairment or I'm struggling spiritually. That's another opportunity. And I just want to point this out. Is any sick among you? Let him, the sick, call for the elders. If it's a physical ailment, you, I may be able to look and see that, hey, I see you're limping today. <laughs> you look terrible. <laughs> Are you sick? 
physically we can observe, we can see. We may not see the others, the, the, the mental or the, the, the emotional sickness, the spiritual weakness. We may not see that as evidently. We as people are very good at concealing some of those things. Right? We're going to have to operate in some trust here with one another within the body of Christ and trust in the Lord that this is what he has said to do. Like I said, it's not a strict formula, but that person, the person who is struggling with the weakness, calls for the elders. Somebody asked, and, and, and you'll probably encounter this if you continue to be a Berean at this particular topic whose faith is doing the healing here? You know, who? Because here's the thing, right? You've got the active faith of the person to call for the elders, you have their faith engaged. Then you have the faith of the elders who trust the Lord that, hey, they've put me here, they've called me, we're going to do the things that God has said to do in this particular circumstance. And I'm convinced that all of it, ultimately, as we get down to it, it isn't their faith anyway, it's the Lord that is doing the healing. But it's the faith of everyone engaged that is sort of the catalyst, if I can just phrase it that way probably not 100% theologically correct, but it kicks things off, right? They call for the elders. Now, there's two things that are kind of inferred in this, that, but don't be dogmatic about it because it could happen anywhere, but right, there's a private venue. They call the, this isn't something that is happening at the church necessarily, though I suppose it could, and I don't know that it would be unruly or out of order, but it doesn't seem to be inferred in the text. Um, it's not a spectacle. And I bring that up because there are those who will take this and, and they fall into certain theological camps and they'll grab it out and they'll make this thing a spectacle. They're going to ask you for money at the end. <laughs> All right. Hey, let's heal this guy. Well, he'll run around and do it. It's a spectacle. Whether it's legitimate or fake, I don't know. Suspected. It's probably less than legitimate but there it is. It's, it's not a spectacle. Secondly, it, it, and I just want to point this out, and I've talked about it again, the elders pray and they anoint with oil, but it's not a formulaic ritual. Uh, the Catholic Church has made this a, a ritual. I mean, it's a, here's the thing. And, and they, they practice it in such a way that it's a faith in the ritual and not a faith in God, which is what this is all about. Trust in the Lord. So it's not about that. It isn't about the ritual. It isn't about the formula. If I show up and, oh, geez, I forgot some oil. Listen, it doesn't even say what kind of oil it is. Whatever you got in the house, go get it. <laughs> you know, vegetable oil, out of that, okay. You got some, uh, get the motor oil, you know, the machine oil melt down some butter, whatever. I, I don't think that it matters that much. It's not a formula. It's not a ritual. Uh, but oil is involved. And I think there are reasons that oil is involved that I haven't fully explored. And so I'm just going to spare you that. Uh, but as far as I can tell, yeah, it's, it's not the ritual. It's the faith. It's the trust in the Lord. Next, obviously, God is involved. Okay, God is involved. 
anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So we're doing this in the name of God. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. The Lord shall raise him up. Ultimately, in the end, God is the one who is doing the healing. The word raise up, it means to arouse or to stir up. That's what it means. And we find it in a few other places. And I want to look at these other places because when God heals somebody, when he does something, it's, it's absolute. It's not a word, but it's uncounterfeitable. You can't fake it. There is a certainty in the healing, but it's always the Lord that does it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Uh, just an example. There's lots and lots of places where this word raised up, uh, this translated raised up is used. And so I want to look at a few examples because it helps give us this idea of certainty. Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. Heal the sick. As Jesus is setting out his, his guys, he says, heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. That's the same word. Raise the dead. Cast out devils. Freely receive, freely give. Right? When, when, when Peter would raise people from the dead, that's, that's exactly what was happening. He's stirring them up. He's raising the dead. Now, you and I both know there's no way that you nor I are raising the dead. They're laying there. Uh, they're <laughs> dead. There's nothing that we can do about it. Yet God, as Jesus is sending his disciples out with that very specific task, this is part of one of the, this is one of the things that I want you to accomplish on this little mission trip you're about to go on. It's undisputable. It's something that you can't counterfeit. This will be a witness and a testimony to the world around you of the veracity of who I am. Specific context, but it gives us an understanding of the word and it's absolute certainty. Turn with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. And I... I've got written down here verse four, but it's actually verse 14. Uh, Jesus, in this verse, this is the third time that Jesus showed himself to the disciples after that he was risen from the dead. Right? He went from dead, lying in the grave, certainly dead. We know this, all the historical accounts, everything. He was pierced through. There was no way that Jesus survived the cross. They stabbed him in the heart with a spear. He was dead. The soldiers who were experts in crucifixion and all of this declared, he's dead. We don't have to break his legs. He's a goner already. And I realize that's morbid and I'm not trying to make light of it, but the certainty is that Jesus was dead. Now he is certainly risen again. Something above and beyond, uncounterfeitable, couldn't fake it. No, nobody could do anything here except for God. That's exactly what happened, right? Romans chapter 6 tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 3, because lest we think that we have no role involved in this, we find that. It's not the case. In Acts chapter 3, J Peter and John are going into the temple. 
you have this guy who's got this infirmity. He's got this weakness in the legs, remember? And he's there at the beautiful gate praying, or excuse me, not praying, begging. And this is where Peter would say, listen, silver and gold have I none, but the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he says in verse six, uh, verse seven, and he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. He went from infirmity to infirmity. He went from sickness, weakness to strength. Now, this wasn't Peter doing it. And, and, and it's a great example because you go through the next couple of chapters in the book of Acts. It's all about their persecution, their trial, and them telling it wasn't us. Jesus Christ healed them. That Jesus, that same Jesus that you put on the cross, he's the one that healed them. All I did was be an agent. The prayer of faith, this trust in God, it's the catalyst of the will of God. And I struggle in phrasing that. It's not, uh, don't misunderstand. It isn't just because I, I trust and we've gone through the formula and now all of a sudden these things are going to happen. That's not what it's about. But it starts with me trusting, with the person who is ill, trusting that, yeah, you know what? God could, God could. And so I'm going to trust that God could. This is what he said in his word. And I'm going to exercise trust. I'm going to call for the elders because I trust God. And those elders are going to come because we trust God. We're going to do these things that God has said to do in these instances. And if it's God's will, he'll heal. And I say that because I don't think that it's a formula. It's not a ritual. It isn't a guarantee. James chapter one, verse six, we're, we're getting near the end here, but he says, in regard to praying for wisdom, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Right? When, we're, when we're here praying, we're engaged in this, this is the same act of faith, no wavering. We, we trust the Lord. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're moving forward. We jump down to verse 16. He says, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual Fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. There is a power in our prayers because it is an exercise of faith. It is an exercise of trust. It is a us showing that we are undivided in our interests. We are undivided in our trust. Creating, for lack of better terms, creating the opportunity for God to show himself strong on our behalf. God, in accordance with his will, uh, heals or does not heal. Whatever his will may be, he is sovereign. It reminds me of Johnny Erickson Tata, who says that, and I don't remember when she said it or, or the context surrounding it, but she makes the statement that she had this accident and God has chose not to heal her because she can bring him more glory in the state she is in than she could in the state she was before. I mean, here she is paraplegic and she says, this is God's sovereign will for me. And I'm content and happy and rejoicing to be here because this is where I can bring in the most glory. It isn't a guarantee, but Elias, Elijah is our example here. He prayed as God directed. 
and it didn't rain. It was a, it was a judgment on the nation of Israel. It was a witness of God's power, a witness of God's existence, of his, his desire to reconcile with the nation of Israel. And then after Mount Carmel and the whole showdown with the prophet of ba- prophets of Baal there, God tells him to pray again for rain. And he goes and he prays, and, he, and it says that he goes and he prays seven times. And on the seventh time, there's this cloud in the sky the size of a man's hand. And Elijah's like, listen, we got to get down off here because it's coming. I never thought it was going to rain when I saw a cloud the size of my hand in the sky. I'm like, where'd that one cloud come from? It's not a symbol. You know, we look at it, we see here's rain coming. It's black and dark. And, you know, you can't even really see the ground because it's already raining over there. We're walking by, by sight. But Elijah was walking by faith. Listen, this is it. This is more than enough. And he ran down in front of the chariot. And before they even get there, it's pouring rain. And he did so as God directed. And in the end, God was made down. He, his will was accomplished. And it was initiated, quote unquote, for lack of better terms, by the prayers of Elijah, by his faith in what God had said. In the same way that the prayer of faith, this exercise of faith, trust in the Lord will spur on, if it's God's will, healing in somebody's life. I hope that doesn't confuse, and I hope that doesn't bring about concern in anybody. Study it further if you need to. Now, I just want to address this, though. Is sin, is this sickness a symptom of sin? And I'll just tell you, it's not a one-to-one. It's not a, you have sin, therefore you will be sick. There are those that would teach that. But it could be. And I want to give you some examples. This sickness, this weakness is not necessarily a direct indication of sin. Consider Job. Chapter 1, verse 8. God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's a righteous man. He's upright. He hadn't done anything wrong. Yet, in God's will, all of these things happen to him by God's permission. So just because we have hardships and afflictions and troubles and sickness and weakness doesn't mean that we are in sin but it could it's possible could be that that is the mechanism of correction that our loving god is using so just evaluate in john chapter 11 john chapter 11 verse 4 This is about Lazarus. Jesus has just received the news that Lazarus, his friend, is sick in Bethany. And ultimately, he delays himself. But he says this in verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death. But for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. In other words, Lazarus was allowed by God to be sick and even die so that the Son of God, so that Jesus might be made known. And that reminds me, like I said, of Johnny Erickson Tata, who in the midst of her affliction, her weakness, her sickness, she says, this is so that God could be made known. And that's an act of faith in and of itself. 
That's a trust in the sovereignty of God. That's a trust in who he is. Now, I don't have anything else to say. I want to close up the book of James. This is the end. And as we conclude, James, one of the most practical, and I'm convinced this is one of the most challenging books in scripture. Because what it does is it removes the, the mystical facets from the things of God. And it plants them firmly in our lives. Right? It's not just talking about it, it's doing it. It's not being a hearer of the word only, but a doer of the word. It's not being somebody who just claims to have faith, it's actually living out your faith. Whether it's in calling for the elders, whether it's in uh, praying in our affliction, whether it's in rejoicing and being when, we, when everything is going our way, when we're married. It's a practical book, and I think what it does the best job of is taking it from some ethereal, spiritual, ultra, you know, these are the people that we all look up to and put in here right here in reality. That there is a struggle with sin. But in the midst of that, it doesn't mean that we are lost to sin. You and I are given the choice to trust and to walk in faith. And it's a choice. Jesus would say this, that we would take up our cross daily. We're going to make that choice every day. When I wake up, am I going to walk in faith or am I going to walk by sight today? We talked about, as I said last week, we talked about making the preparations in our hearts so that we might walk in faith all the time. We just make that decision now. But it takes that walk of faith and it puts... Uh, it makes it nitty gritty. It's the reality of Christianity. And rather than leaving it on some shelf where it's like the fine china, you bring it down a special occasion. It's nice to talk about. We could point out it looks really good. It says, listen, no, this is, this is utilitarian. This is it. This is boots on the ground discipleship. I can't look at it from afar. We, we, we can't. We're responsible for the word of God and what it says to you and I. And James makes that clear. We have to take it down. We have to come to grips with how it demands that you and I should live. And that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to be confronted with because we realize our failure, but the book addresses our failure. And more than that, it addresses the grace and the mercy and the love of God in our lives. It's for his glory that we would walk in obedience. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for the book of James. I thank you, Lord, for the challenge that it presents us. And God, I pray that any misrepresentation would be corrected by your spirit. Lord, that we would walk away from the book of James with a clarity and an understanding. Lord, that we have some responsibility in our discipleship. And I thank you for that, Lord. It's for your glory and it's for your honor. And it, Lord, is surely our privilege to be your servants. We thank you and we praise you. Lord, I pray that as we have opportunity to worship now, as we sing praise and adoration to who you are and for what you've done, Lord, may it be spurred on by our correct understanding of your truth. May it be spurred on by your Holy Spirit moving within us to convict, to encourage, to instruct us.
We praise you and we thank you, Lord, that you are for us and not against us, that you have never forsaken us. We praise you and we give thanks now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.